Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 122 my name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Harriet Hunter, author of Miracles in Recovery, a daily devotional. So she shares both her story, which is very compelling of how she moved out of addiction and had some incredible losses and continue to move forward and how she's taken that loss and grief and her spirit to work in the women's prison to help them in recovery and move through the 12-step program. I think it's a great episode. I think you'll like it. And uh, we'll start there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, and uh, I am excited to introduce her. Her name is Harriet Hunter, and she is author of the book, Miracles of Recovery, Daily Meditations of Hope, Courage, and Faith. Harriet, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Duane. Hi. Yes, my name is Harriet Hunter. And oddly enough, that is my birth name, Harriet ah. Hunter. It's a, a difficult for me because the world knows me by Beth, which is my nickname. Oh. So, yeah. So while I try to remain anonymous, it's, yeah, hasn't worked out so well, but, <laughs> All but right. that's well, okay too. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're sharing your story and you're sharing hope <laughs> and you're sharing who you are and, and that's awesome. Right, so, right, right. So tell me a little, let's just start off. Tell me about your story and, and your recovery and. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's a typical drunk log, if you will. It, to kind of encapsulate it, uh, I'm the oldest of five, came from a strict Italian Catholic family. My mother was excommunicated when she divorced my father at 25. They came from the old way, the old school, and that is you made your bed, boy, you're, ex you're gone from the family. Wow. So here, yeah, here's my mother with five kids under three of them in diapers at 25. And her and my dad would play. My mother was my abuser, psychological, mental, 
And uh, I don't know who my physical abuser was, but there were several growing up. My father was an alcoholic. He was rarely home. And then my mother said, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And boom. So I was the caretaker, if you will. Right. And I guess it was about at 17 years old, I um, had my first bout of suicide because I felt so, was so ingrained in me that everything that happened was my fault. Right. You know, yeah. There was a lot of shame and a lot of trauma, a lot of terror. They played this game where my father would, uh, my mother took the two babies, the two boys. So there was a lot of go stealing of the kids in the middle of the night and, you know, having to shut up and not tell anybody and don't you tell your father I was here and, you know, (laughs) so I was the one that was always left being the oldest and I had to lie and, and set up a scenario where I wouldn't get killed or so, you know, that's what it felt like. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So at 17, I mean, I, I, I was out. I had to get away. So I did. I, I took a whole bottle of pills, you know, but in my mind, I was going to kill myself. Well, obviously the pills didn't work, but I'll tell you what did. And that was my drinking and drugging. I was had my first beer at 14, standing on the street on a corner, you know, playing a big shot. And I hated beer. So I quickly learned that at the junior high football games, that there was Mad Dog 2020 and there was Boone's Farm, man. Boone's Farm at the time, back in the early 70s, was it. And then there was marijuana. And uh, yeah, so I would vacillate between the two. Marijuana was my... My love of choice, though, I, I, I got to tell you, it just did for me what I could not do for myself. And that is absolutely take me away, you know. It just took you out of all of that pain, that chaos, oh, that terror. It just yeah. did it. It did it. So fast forward, you know, I grew up always hearing that, you know, well, I tell people, let me just say this. If you ever saw the movie Precious. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that kind of sums up where I came from. Wow. Uh, So I'll just leave it with that. Only it was worse, you know. um, Yeah. The the personal stuff that was done to me to shame me because my mother couldn't control me. I would not uh, roll over and die, you know. And by the time I'm in my early twenties, man, I wanted to kill her. I just absolutely hated everything she represented so just filled with like anger rage (sighs) terror all of these feelings from all this trauma Mm -hmm. and abuse and Mm -hmm. and just drowning it out with Mm -hmm. marijuana drowning it out with alcohol yep yep as hard as i could as much as i could that that's how i live my life and true to form unfortunately i never finished anything ever um, I kept a good job because I had an uncle in high places and he opened the door for me. Right. You know, what did that do for my self-esteem? So that right. just made me feel more entitled, you know, because I, I could do no wrong. 
So I stayed at these jobs. I did a lousy job. I worked for the governor in New York in the 70s. I worked for lobbyists and attorneys. But when I worked for the governor in New York, I was so uh, paranoid and so sure. I had no sense of smell because of a trauma that happened early, early, early on. So, but in my mind, they could smell me. They could smell the, the alcohol. They could smell the marijuana. They, you know, so I was paranoid over the top. So I left and went to Florida, met my husband, got married six or seven years into it before my daughter, I was still drinking up a storm and still smoking. And he said, wow. to me, yeah, he was an ex cop. And he <laughs> said, he said, look, honey, I love you, but it's me or the marijuana. You can't have mm. both. So what, what does any good addict alcoholic say? Well, can I still drink? Well, yeah, you can still drink, you know. Right. <laughs> so I doubled and tripled to make up for what I lost in my, in my drug of choice, man. Right, and, right. Uh, uh-huh. So long story short, I was a Donna Reed in the house. You know, I had, I was very good being on the, on, at work, not letting people know I had this presence. I was a high functioning drunk. I could entertain 40 people, keep smiling, but I never could remember the next day who was there, what happened. So I tell people that my life between the trauma at at a very young age and then my alcohol, I really kind of lost like 30 years of my life from drinking and drugging. And I would imagine like, you, you know, you've got this all on the outside, so to speak. You're kind of got it somewhat together and, and everything, oh, but on the inside, absolutely. it's a mess. Oh, yeah. It was a complete mess. Yeah. So fast forward, we had a daughter. Uh, her name was Laura. And um, at around, oh, what age was she? Maybe in ninth or 10th grade, she was an incredible incredible girl. She took first chair in music. She excelled at everything. You know, she was probably an alcoholic like her mother. She, but she was a high achiever and it was all about her and her dad. There's this triangle they talk about in psychology terms. I was out here somewhere doing my thing. And then there was Laura and her dad. They were everything that I always wanted to be but never knew how to be. So in 2004, he uh, gets this cough and we thought it was my daughter's gerbil. So we go to the doc, we go to the doctor and uh, the doctor comes out and he said, Oh my God, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've got four months, maybe six months to live. He had uh, end stage lung cancer. So I kind of took over where he left off. And the good news is, is I was sober then. I got sober in 1999 and I never looked back because I did all my, I did all my relapsing in that 30 year run. Right, right. 
And he he would say over dinner one time, my daughter would say, Mom, when are you going to stop going to these meetings? And her dad said, oh, honey, don't worry about that. Your mom's going to stop that like she stopped everything else. Well, yeah, that was enough for me inside to say, oh, baby, you don't know me very well. Right, and I, right. And I flew into AA, into the arms of the fellowship in AA. Well, I was wondering, what was that moment that for you started to get you sober? You decided, I think you said 90, was it 99 or? Yeah, 99. And said, okay, I'm getting sober. What was, what was, what happened? Our marriage kind of fell apart because he was a cop, an ex-cop, and he came to meetings with me in the beginning, but he, he thought AA was a cult. He hated mm-hmm. it. And he hated it so much. And we had such a insecure relationship because I took hostages. I don't know how to have a relationship. That's why I'm single today. Right. And uh, yeah, uh-uh. and he would uh, say, you know, I liked you better when you drank. To give, wow. you a, to give you a clue. So there was a lot of dysfunction going on in, in this relationship <laughs> oh, and, and yeah. in your relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He didn't. I was trying to get better. I was trying to practice my principles in all my affairs. But he was way, way over that, way beyond that. He hated AA and resented the fact that I had any kind of interest outside the house. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, he passed away uh, in 2004. Now, I had been sober for five years. The gift in that, two things happened. One, I, for the first time in my life, understood the word surrender. His passing was a realization for me at a deep, deep level that I have never been sober alone, okay, because he rescued me. Right. I, this is my first time alone, and I had no earthly idea. I didn't know how to keep a checkbook. I didn't know how to do the bills. I don't know what bills we had. He, you know, he did everything while I drank, and I took care of the house inside. I, I really took with me. And I still have it today, what it truly means to surrender to step one, powerlessness. I, you know, I tried as best as I could to help him to change our situation, um, to pray and do everything. We went to Moffat and, you know, whatever right, we could, right. but nothing, nothing, not the greatest doctors in the world. When God said, this is it. So fast forward now, my daughter, Um, you know, my daughter took on this. It's your fault. Your father died and she hated my guts, but I got it. I understood it because she was, she was a rageaholic. Some, she had to do something with all that insanity and hate and anger herself. Yeah. So it didn't turn out for us very well. For the next six six years, I had to put 
new locks on the house. I mean, I I went to I started Al-Anon, and in Al-Anon, I fell apart. I said, I, I can't, I can't cope. I, I can't do this. You know, she's put me up against a wall, and the woman said, "Well, is it affecting your sobriety?" Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course it is, you know, because right. it's, it's going to be her or me. So I changed the locks. And at 18, because she would not listen, she would not cooperate in the least. And so I had to, we had to separate ways. And, and I would not let her in the house because by God, I'm living here too. You know, if you right. can't cooperate and this is what you want, then this is the way it's going to be. So for the next five, six years, she flitted around, of course, found guys in different states, yada, yada. Then she came home one day, said, Mom, I want to go to Australia. I, because she went there with the Tallahassee Winds Orchestra. And they went as a guest of Australia and played in the in, in fact, that's where she was when her, the day her father passed. She called me and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I just got, we just landed the blood. It was late. How's dad? And I had to tell her. Oh, yeah, I wow. know. Oh, it was a heartbreaker. It was very tough. But the toughest part of all came when after a couple years she had been there and we started to communicate and we started, started to repair and started we started to, to repair i was able to make amends to her and she listened which was huge so mm -hmm. she about two and a half later years later she said mom i had to wait until i found out what this was she said but i've got two maybe three years to live i have this I have this disease called idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. So I took a vacation over there for a couple of weeks and spent time with her and her boyfriend and then came home. Well, sometime maybe eight months later, I get a phone call at midnight because the time changes. So, right. Know, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he calls me and he says, Oh, hello, Mrs. Hare. I'm just calling to let you know that. Laura's in ICU oh in the hospital. In the hospital, she has a staph infection, and they are watch watching. They're just observing her. I'm, I'm like, you know, yeah. Who who goes into an ICU for ten days already for observation? No. Huh. So by right. the time I got there, her organs were already compromised. They wanted to do a lung and a heart transfer, but her lung, her body was too compromised. Those two weeks will forever be the most life-changing for me. I learned now, if I hadn't learned, which I had with my husband, that mm -hmm. I am powerless, but you know, God was with me every day and AA saved my life. I found the, the day I got there, I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know anybody. 
So I found a uh, a woman's meeting. I went there. And of course, I, I talked. I mean, you know, is there anybody yeah. here for your first meet, first time? Yada, yada. So that went real well. I slept in a hostel when there was no heat. Oh, no. I was like one woman in, in a in a room of uh, three men. And, wow. you know, I had, I know, I had my clothes on and I think they knew enough, you know, just yeah. leave me alone. That was my model. Leave me alone. So anyway, I was there with her when she died. And it was, um, it was a wonderful, a wonderful thing. I, wow. I am so, so lucky. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's I mean, a lot. Just so, so much to survive and and walk through, and you know, when we have deep losses like that and mm. deep grief, I mean, I think we really do realize like how powerless we are in this world and how little we really have control over. That's right. That is so right. Yes, yes, yes. So it took me about five or six years even to be able to say her name, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but um, so. It's okay. I had always wanted to go to cross country. And the year that she was gone, I started looking up an RV thinking, well, maybe if I can get her home, we'll both take off, you know. Yeah. And so while that didn't happen. Almost a year to the date, I bought an RV and took off with my two dogs. You may have seen them in a in a picture <laughs> on my web. That's, yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. And, oh, and, it was, and that's yeah. where my book began. Ah, my, oh yeah, the book was a result of my daughter's loss, and because I'd. I'd park, I'd drive six miles, six hours or, or more a day and get to where I wanted to go, either a COE, Corps of Engineer, or a Walmart parking lot or a state, you know, and I'd park. So you, you started to take all this pain, this grief, this loss, mm -hmm. and kind of pour it into mm -hmm. this book. And right. one of the things that we've talked about before we were talking about earlier before we were recording was just all of your journaling and your writing and taking all of this and putting it to paper. Yes. Yes. Uh, miracles was a culmination of, of loss. I mean, it really was a reflection of where I was emotionally and so I talked, it's because it's a 365 day inspirational. I wrote about everything. I didn't know why it was just there. You know, I'd write about uh, fear of tomorrow, fear of being good enough, um, fear of letting go. Oh, I mean, a thousand topics, you know, or at least it felt like, but how I got to that to even know how to do that is in my late 20s, uh, I started writing. And um, I remember I wrote this short story. 
for my neighbor. She was 80 something years old at the time. And it was called, It Happens to Everyone, You Know. And it's about getting old and the disparity between kids like me who were 18 at the time, 17, and somebody who's 80. It was really kind of a neat story. Well, long story short, I took it to her. I asked her to read it and edit it. She tore it to bits, and I never saw her again. That poor baby. I was so hurt. I was so uh, disillusioned. I thought I had a wonderful thing here. And so anyway, I, I never got sober in the rooms of AA. I got sober online in 1999, okay? Yeah, and in so doing, the way we worked the steps online back then, and I had a, a wonderful sponsor who I still adore today, is you had to prove. I had to write my gratitudes every day. I had to write my resentments every day. And then I had to send them to my sponsor. Now, one sponsor was in California and the other one who I stayed with was also in a different part of California. Right, right. So you had to write this out. So you have this history of writing and then you're getting sober. And the way you got sober is you, you had to write and put it on paper and make it concrete. That's right. Yeah. And then you go through these tragedies, these really difficult losses. Right. And right, right. you start to pour that out in into daily writings. Exactly. Exactly. And from all of this conglomeration of writing came journaling with a purpose. Because I have learned over the years through reading, through writing, um, you know, Melanie Beattie was a big inspiration for me. Julia Cameron was a huge inspiration. So in reading there and other books, I saw I could do this, you know, I can create. uh, And I did for uh, maybe four or five years ago. And I took it. I've been working at the women's prison for right. almost I to ask you about that all too. of my, oh, it's the best service work in the world for me and sponsorship, that and sponsorship. So I would take it to the women and they would let me uh, have a class out there and they loved it. And I took it to uh, the senior center here and some nursing homes, and they loved it. I had little, I was able to redeem myself from that poor 88, 80-something-year-old woman by offering it to these 90-year-old women, this writing class, and they just loved it. What do you you think (laughs) it is about for you putting this down on paper and, and writing this out, and what do you think it is in writing this that helps others yeah, doing specifically putting like pen to paper oh, and yeah. putting it out there. Oh, yeah. Why for you was this so powerful? How it was for me and continues to be for me and my sponsees and other people who have journal 
people who have told me, oh, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't journal. We have found out collectively that something happens to the brain. It sees it and hears it in a much more intentional, focused way than just talking. I found out that when I write, I can't get away from myself. I have to slow my brain down. And I think I'm ADHD as well, see. Um, slow my brain down and focus on what I'm saying. And when I do that, I've been told that I'm using the creative part of my brain. See, when I wrote Miracles, I will tell you absolutely, I did not write that book by myself. My God spoke through me. If you've read any of the pages, uh, and I, I would love for you to go to Amazon and just open the look-see. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will and read some of those words because that was not me. That was a divine intention. And when I journal, see, I, I'm able to tap into my highest self. That's right. what happens. And so you're, you're able to see a, a clear picture. You're able to see oh. yourself in a bigger space. That's what I hear. Kind of like a, oh my God, almost like a cosmic consciousness. If that, it, that's yes. how I kind of see it. Indeed. Absolutely. Yes. Precisely. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not, uh, we're thinking outside of ourselves, if you will. Uh, and the exercises that I, uh, I have people do uh, help to help to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Right. So they mm -hmm. can they can write down the stuff, write what's going on in their mind, write out all their feelings, all their thoughts, all the confusion, right. put it out on paper, be able to see it in a different way and oh then my. be able to take action in a different way. Oh, my I'm here to tell you, Dwayne, absolutely. I'm writing a book right now. I'm into maybe 10,000 words. It's called Changing Our Perspective, How to Achieve Your Highest Self, or some kind of subtitle. Yes, for me, being able to change my perspective started with journaling, and it has everything to do with my recovery today. Everything, how wow. I how I see my world, how I'm able to make that shift from bad to good, you know, from sad to happy. And and when we're, when you're working with um, all the women in the in the prison, mm -hmm. and are you having them write all of this stuff down? Write down their step work. Write down <laughs> what they need to write down. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Because they know if they're working from me, that they must, with a capital M, they must learn to do it right there, where they are, right. where right. their feet are. Because when they get out, it's too late. Right. It's just to too it late. Oh, my goodness. The first book I wrote, actually, was a compilation. The first ebook, I should say. Is a compilation of 
all the little tips that I've learned in sobriety. It's called your daily reprieve. So I bring in AA for starters, but then I talk about, you know, this was written for women who are incarcerated, who if they want to know, if they want to do better or be better, they have to do better. And this is how you do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you've also created a, a course for people to, to walk through and to, to do right. uh, in this journaling. And so we'll talk about that in a second. One of the things I wanted to say, hey, I want to get there. But one of the things yeah. I also wanted to say is that, I mean, for me personally, journaling has been also a big part of my own healing through tragedy and loss and grief and because oh being God. able to put it on paper, oh my God, um, gives you just uh, it, it, it can help you let go of things, and then it can also give you clarity, and it can also give you purpose. It can show you where you need to go. All of the above, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. One of the ways I ask women to write their gratitudes is not to just put a word on one, two, three, four, five, happy, happy, sad, whatever. No, no. You have to be able to see what it is you feel. If you don't see it, then it's not real. So I I ask them to write, I'm happy or I'm grateful for the sun. Why? Because it makes me feel warm, makes me feel excited, makes me feel you know, how does it make you feel? That's right. where I ask women to get to when I sponsor them. So, because that's the beginning of having a change in perspective. Right. And a mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. And, then and a can, shift. Yes. Right. Which then enables you to change some of that destructive behavior that doesn't lead to where you want to be. Oh, and doesn't my wanna, goodness. Doesn't lead yes. to where you want to go. And no. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. One of the um, therapeutic modules is I ask them to get a, it doesn't matter what, mm-hmm. paper, enough paper with three dividers somehow. One divider is gratitudes, and I teach them how to write like that with justification. And then the second one is resentments. Why? Because when we come in, especially in the prison. When, when we, we first come in there, we have so much going on, we can't see straight. That's all we know, you know, mm-hmm. is, it, mm-hmm. is our resentments. And yeah. it's all about the little stuff. So we, we do that the same way we do our gratitudes. We just write it. I'm hateful. I am so angry. I resent. I can't stand whatever it is. Use that. Write about it. But it's got to be in our 24 hours. And then close it with, dear higher power, I don't want this anymore. Please take it from me. Yeah. And I think so much when, you know, when we've had trauma in our life, especially in our history, in our young childhood, we can be so disconnected from those emotions, have no idea how to express them, how have no idea what to do with them. Exactly. And the only thing we know that works is is either finding some kind of substance or some kind of behavior or That's some right. kind of escape to, to be able to just avoid it because we don't know what to do with it. Exactly. And, 
Yeah. And by journaling, uh, it gives us a, a little bit more of an opportunity to, to do something different. So, oh my, oh my. So, mm-hmm. so we're, we're coming up on our time. So, uh, if, if you could say anybody out there, right, who's struggling listening to this podcast, um, maybe they're thinking about changing, maybe they're stuck, maybe they're lost hope, what would you want to tell them? Oh boy, I would want to tell them that they are here for a reason, that they are worth every breath they take. They just don't know it yet. And if they want to know it, then, and if they're in recovery and they want to know it, it's incumbent upon us to do the work. It's not easy. But they deserve it. They're worthy of finding out what who they really are, and they're better than they can ever, ever imagine. That's that's beautiful. I just love that. I love Thank that. You. Thank um, you. How can if people want to know more about you? How can they find you? How can they get more information if they're interested in uh, getting your book or looking at this uh, journaling class? How can yeah. they find it? Oh, I'd love it. Easy peasy. Just go to harriethunter.org, O-R-G, forward slash J-W-A-P, journaling with a purpose. If they're interested in the class, if they just, if they're, they want to, I have an audio book out there as well. And a beautiful individualized 365 day inspirational calendar that's for sale. Yeah. It's yeah. With not just quotes from me, from other learned people that have come before us, but, uh, or they can go to Amazon and get my book. Awesome. I need for you to know, please, how honored I am to be here. I feel such a presence, such a, uh, a higher calling right now with here with you. Um, you. I'm so grateful for when I saw the addicted mind, I quit. I was so excited because (laughs) thank you. I know that is what there's no question in my mind (laughs) that, uh, yeah, yeah. Your website's beautiful. I will post you on my website. Great. Great. And, uh, and let everybody know that they must go hear you and hear, uh, see what you're doing. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. And I, I will do the same. I'll, I'll post all in the show notes at the addictedmind.com. I'll p- post all the links to this so people can find oh. you. And I just appreciate the, the work that you're putting out there and helping people who are suffering oh and, my. uh, you know, that comes from your own suffering, you know, your own pain and hurt that you've been through and right. to be able to give that back to others and, and help them find their way through it. It's the, it's the best gift we can give. And, it is um, the best give, gift, especially now without, cause I don't have anybody. And I tell them, you've got to use me. I'm sitting here rotting. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Use me up. I want to give it. That's, That's right. Awesome. That's right. <laughs> Harriet, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you in the future. I um, hope so, Dwayne. I, I hope so. Would, 
I think something will come of that. So um, thank you, Harriet. Thank you for coming on The Addicted Mind. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 122. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, you think it's a good podcast, please share it with a friend and subscribe in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and I really appreciate it. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.